This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of the best material we put up on the air, your stories. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this next story is brought to us by Alex Cortez, who recently went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters, what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products over a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of an entrepreneur he met there. Marissa Sergi is a redhead. I think the color of our hair gives us a platform to embrace our true selves. So being able to have that stigma in the public eye that we are these sassy firecrackers that are forced to be reckoned with gives us the ability to really meet our full potential and be fun and quirky and not be ashamed of it because we already have the reputation may as well meet up to it right and as you could probably guess by now marissa is she started a wine company appropriately named redhead at the age of 19 which you'd probably think is illegal to drink wine let alone to sell it but not in her state of ohio if both of your parents consent you are legally allowed to have a drink I've been drinking wine since day one, to be honest. My grandpa, Sergi, would give my sister and I thimbles full of wine. And my mom hated it. She would complain and just scream, oh my goodness, you can't do this. She's only like four or five weeks old. And my grandpa, Dominic Sergi, said, if you don't like it, you could pay for babysitting. And my mom stopped complaining. But hey, winemaking is in my blood figuratively and literally. I grew up in a very Italian-centered family and my grandparents immigrated here from Italy over 40 years ago and brought over the tradition of winemaking. So growing up, I always had lots of family and friends coming in and out of my grandparents' house, drinking wine and eating food just like they were one of us and it was Definitely something that inspired me to carry on with the family tradition. My grandpa passed away. I was only two years old, so I don't have any memory of him, but I'm able to embrace his memory through making wine. My father, Frank Sergi, he founded the winery where I work at called Lula Bella Winery. It was just a label to start. I wanted to design a fun label after doing market research, just looking what Labels appealed to me as a young person, not you know, of age, but I knew labels were very important, so that's why I created Redhead Wine to have a very appealing label, yet having a high-quality wine to match the packaging. And I was able to get a winemaking degree from Cornell University called Viticulture and Analogy. Which some people might think is a joke of a program. I mean, you're already doing enough tricking in college as it is. Do you really need a major in it? You know what? Yes. I love when people tell me that because 
The number one most failed class at Cornell University is the wines class within the hotel school. It's because people come in there and be like, oh, I'm gonna drink wine all day, get an A and peace out. Well, um, when you fail and you can't get your diploma, it is a big deal. It is a lot of wine chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, vineyard management, plant science, gen chem, advanced chemistry, organic chemistry, wine chemistry, one, two, and three. You can't just walk through the winemaking major at Cornell University drunk for the next four years, you know what I mean? You gotta pay attention, you need to know your stuff or at least get help if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I was a classic college student not paying attention in my class and I was texting and checking my email and I received an email that if you are a student entrepreneur and had a product or an idea to come to a meeting to receive free wings over Ithaca. Best wings in Ithaca. I love hot wings. They're very expensive, so I was a broke college student. So I was like, I'm there. I don't have a business, but I had redhead wine. I happened to have a bottle with me on campus. So I was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to check it out, get some wings and leave. Hopefully no one will notice me. But then I forgot. I had red hair. I stand out. I also had a bottle of wine, so everyone's like, oh, wine, how cool. And then I piled my wings very high on my plate. And then one of the professors running that meeting was like, if you're a student entrepreneur, you must give an elevator pitch at this meeting. It's like, crap, I can't leave because everyone knows I'm here. So I didn't even know what a pitch was. I Googled wine industry facts, slapped something together, didn't completely fall my face in front of 100 people that were there. and. Two days later, I received an email from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences that I was nominated as the Student Business of the Year for my college. I was like, okay, um, I'm not a business owner. I don't know how to even pitch a business professionally at a competition, but here we are. I did not win the competition, but I learned so, so much. I learned how to pitch a business professionally, all the business terminology that was really important to communicate when it came to costing and your market strategy, product market fit, uh, target market, all kinds of stuff. I just was a winemaker with an idea. So after graduating college, I moved to Modesto, California, worked for a winery out there, got about a year of experience, and I was like, okay, I'm 22 years old, I'm single, I have kids, I'm just gonna see if I can make this dream a reality. I packed up my bags from sunny California, moved 3,000 miles back to my childhood bedroom in Ohio, and became a bootstrapped, unglorified entrepreneur <laughs> to launch Redhead. I knew I didn't want to be 80 years old on my rocking chair drinking some gin and tonic one day and be like, ah, I wonder if I did it. So here we are. It's happening. It's getting real. And when we come back, we continue with this delightful voice, and it's Marissa Sergis, and she is the founder of Redhead Wine, based in Youngstown, Ohio. Her story continues here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and with entrepreneur Marissa Sergi's story. The year was 2017, and she'd heard about an opportunity to pitch her redhead wine to Walmart and their open call event. I was just checking email. The Young Sound Business Incubator sent me the application, and I was like, wow, I have no chance. But I was like, the answer's always no if you don't ask. Crossed my fingers, sent in the application, and I found out a few weeks later I was flying to Bentonville, Arkansas. So I was excited but nervous because I knew there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When you pitch Walmart, it's important to understand how to work the best with Walmart and analyzing what's the benefit for them and how you'll bring them value. You can't just pitch your product and talk about your product and who you are and your business and how it's going to work. You need to think about who you're talking to. You need to provide as much value as possible and the product sales will come later. So I had a marketing professor from YSU help me analyze Walmart stores to see what percent of the market I could capture if they gave me a test market. And I believe that really showcased that we did our research. We understand we can't just drop a product on their shelf. Who's going to buy it? What current Walmart customer is going to purchase the wine type of thing? And uh, that really helped us a lot. I took a deep breath and just walked in there with confidence. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. But the buyers were so kind and really interested. When Walmart invites you to open call, they want to work with you. Even if you walk away with a no or a maybe, there's still a chance. They want to make it work because they're interested in your product. They, they wouldn't be inviting you here to waste your time. But I really wasn't sure if it was a yes, so asked them, hey, is this a yes? And they said yes. And I was very, very grateful for that. And when I walked out of the buyer meeting, I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe I pulled it off. I couldn't believe they said yes to Redhead Wine and allowed me to have an opportunity at my dream by creating a wine brand that could potentially be shared with the whole country one day. So the first person I called was my grandparents. First people I called were my grandparents and they were very excited. And it was nice to share that excitement with them. And I put the boots on the ground and started hitting the pavement with sales. I'm a winemaker, I make the wine, but part of my test market, I had to pitch every single manager or department lead to get them to okay the product and then I would be able to sell it there. As many as I wanted in the state of Ohio, but I knew I could only handle between 30 to 60, so we capped it at that. I didn't want to bite off too much that I could chew because you have to deliver on time and in full. You got to keep your commitments. The minute you're not honest in any business setting is the moment that you lose all of your potential and credibility. So that's something that I really tried to emphasize when I was trying to pitch and grow the company. What was most important was the, the sell-through rate. Are you meeting home offices, minimum sell-throughs? Just the number of units that you're selling per week, per month, per quarter. Are you having a great reputation? Are customers giving good feedback and looking for your product? 
and 60 stores later, a year and a half in the future, we received modular space. You have a permanent shelf position reserved for your product and your product only. So that is the most prime possession you could have as a, as a supplier, that you can't be kicked off the shelf by other competition. The home office has that little reserve sign for you with that tag, their price and UPC on it. And it's really cool to see on the shelf now. It just happened a couple months ago. A small town, 25-year-old winemaker with zero budget survived a Walmart test market with just true grit, just going, showing up, asking questions. How could he serve this store better? What could we improve on? How are sales? You have to have those conversations. Just because you're in Walmart doesn't mean you're set. There's a lot of work and responsibility that goes along with having this opportunity. It's pretty incredible that Marissa raised no money to start her business, and she's now in Walmart. Zero. Um, to be honest, I don't even care. I'm going to keep it very real with you guys. In two years, I've only spent $5,000 in marketing. It's just being honest, customer relationships, and putting my best foot forward. I think that's really helped because I am the winemaker, third generation winemaker. It's what I love and I think my customers resonate with that because there's a lot of brands out there and some of the stories are not true. They're just made up just to target a market. Redhead was made because I was hungry for hot wings and I had a bottle of wine with me. That's the real deal and I think that's why it's succeeding because I never overthought it. I just was in the moment. We employ about 40 people total at the company and we have hired at least six new additional employees due to Walmart open call. So we're very grateful to be able to do that, especially in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I know a lot of our job losses have been in the public eye. Like GM Lordstown closed, we lost 1,700 jobs. Over 40 years ago, the steel mills closed. We lost 40,000 jobs. So being able to be from Youngstown, Ohio, while creating a California quality wine by buying the California grapes, while keeping the jobs in Ohio is super special to the area. And although we're only hiring a handful of people compared to GM or the steel mills, it's exciting to know that we're at least affecting one additional family, maybe two, three, four, and we want to continue to do so. Just really grateful for the opportunity to have a partnership with Walmart. They've impacted not only my business, but many in my community and, of course, the entire United States. They've committed to invest over $250 billion back in the U.S. economy over this 10-year span that they plan to have open call. And due to research, that's going to create over one million jobs for our country, and that's something that everyone should be grateful for every day. So, really happy to be here. At Walmart Open Call 2019, 25-year-old Marissa was invited to speak before the 500 entrepreneurs hoping to get into Walmart stores at this event, as she did. Ever since then, I've been paying it forward because I'm just so grateful and want to help others and I think that's why home office invited me to speak here and 
be kind of a supplier on the inside, helping everyone feel comfortable and confident to pitch. Just realizing everyone's human. Just be honest, be real, be yourself. And I think that's the moment that you could really succeed and uh, do what you're sought out to do to make your dreams happen. Marissa only wished that her grandma could have been there to see how her sacrifice has paid off in Marissa's life. She is absolutely amazing. She only came here with a suitcase and a dream to give the future generations of the Sergi family a better life. So um, I work so hard because I don't want to waste her sacrifice. I wish she could be here today just to see what it's like to be at a retailer like Walmart and to see what I've been able to take from all of her sacrifices to be able to be one of the speakers this year at Walmart Open Call. It's just something that I never imagined would happen, but I'm here and I'm going to embrace every moment. Her name is Michalina Sergi, but her maiden name is Valentino. She absolutely loves wine. She's one of those traditional grandmas. You're making meatballs, homemade pasta. You've ate at least three platefuls of food, but you still have to have more and have dessert and an espresso. It's a real deal. So uh, she loves any type of wine and she definitely enjoys Redhead Red Blend. And you've been listening to Marissa Sergi and she's the founder of Redhead Wine based in Youngstown, Ohio. And my goodness, to bring 46 jobs or however many she's bringing to a town What a thing to do, and what a thing for Walmart to do. And my goodness, what a story. Committing to buying an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. That's a big deal, and certainly a big deal to people like Marissa Sergi. Marissa's story, and by the way, a story of intergenerational love. Listen to the way she talked about her parents and the sacrifices they make. This This is a voice, it's a classic American voice. In the end, great, great gratitude and a hustle. She gets the order. She gets to Walmart. She says, oh, the work has just begun. I want to make sure I serve Walmart. It's just not about me. It's just not about my product. And that servant heart, boy, it was on display. Marissa's and proud parents and grandparents as well. Marissa Sergi's story and Walmart's story. An entrepreneur's story, too, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend, Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled, The Fred Davis Blues. 
I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch, reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19 in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues.
I stand before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it, Mama, hoping that you'll understand. Well, baby, Mama, please don't dog me round. I'd rather love you, baby, than anyone else I know in town. The complex arrangements of Dinah Washington. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours. What the sun and the flowers. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, five long years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. Tell me, pretty baby, tell me so, am I yours? Cause I want to know, cause the way you've been mistreating me, it's got me feeling low. Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar, using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work, at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, 
a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. We've been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then-girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady, she's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm gonna close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. 
It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader, Crazy Marvin Braxton. He'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's. That's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that. Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the thousand dollars he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred apparently was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, 
citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black -black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in the small newspaper story, yet every day such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School, where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an alumni association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized. You can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Usick's story, Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us from a listener in Colorado, Patty Kingsbaker. And, well, take a listen to this one. It was back in um, 1962. I was 12. And um, my brother, who was 10 years older than me, was getting out of the Air Force. And he was in California. So he had made a deal with me, you know, if my grades were really good, that he would fly me out to California and that I could drive back with him cross country when he got out of uh, the Air Force. So, and of course, I was just beside myself thinking, oh my God, we're going to go to Disneyland and I'm going to get to see Hollywood and um, Hollywood Boulevard and the stars. And, you know, it's a 12 year old. I, uh, I just, I, I figured if you went to Hollywood, you were going to see movie stars. Anyway, so I flew out. And uh, we spent a couple of days in L.A. We went and saw all the stars on Hollywood Boulevard. In fact, it was Thanksgiving. It was around Thanksgiving time. He took me to dinner at this restaurant in Hollywood that was really famous at the time. They actually brought a phone to our table so that I could call my mom and say, Happy Thanksgiving. I was like, I mean, for a 12-year-old, they bring a phone to the table. Then I looked across the room and I saw, I went, I know that guy. It was Jesse White, who at the time was the Maytag guy. So, you know, that was my first celebrity sighting. But we went to Disneyland, and the whole day we were there, you know, I mean, Jesse White wasn't exactly up to where I, you know, I wanted to see somebody like Annette. Okay, or Frankie Avalon. And so when we were at Disneyland, the whole day, my brother would go, oh, there's a net. And I'd go, where, where? And of course, he was just yanking my chain. and They weren't there. And he kept doing that to me. And I would get all excited and, you know, no celebrities. And so, but we had a great time at Disneyland. And then we hit the road and we had spent the night in Needles, California. So we got up really early, went to the gas station to gas up to head out. And the gas station was kind of crowded, which I really didn't notice at the time. But there was a um, trailer pulling a horse, and there was a big, like, Winnebago-type thing. And so, But I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and my brother comes back to the car, and he goes, Get out of the car. Elvis Presley is standing over there. And I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, I'm not going to fall for that again. And so he goes, I swear to you, get out of the car. Elvis Presley is standing over there. So I'm like, I look out of the car, and sure enough, standing there in black pants and this shirt and this scarf around is Elvis Presley. So I, I grab a piece of paper, and I get out of the car, and I go over to, I can't speak. I'm like, I'm standing in the presence of royalty. And he just kind of smiles, and I'm standing there with my pen and paper. And uh, he said, did you want me to sign that for you? And I said, yes, please. So he asked me what my name was. I said, Patty. So he wrote to Patty. I still have it to this day. Loving kisses, Elvis. 
And I got back in the car, and I mean, my heart was just pounding, and he got back in the Winnebago. And what it was, it was there was a Cadillac limousine, the Winnebago, and then there was a, another car pulling the horse. And in each of those, there were two chauffeurs with, you know, these overalls with EP on there, you know. And so they kind of took off, and then the guy, there was this guy who stayed to pay their gas bill and it turned out to be colonel parker so my brother started talking to him and he said yeah that elvis had just finished filming this film viva las vegas and that they were heading back to memphis he was just really nice anyway we got in the car and they took off and i said to my brother i didn't get a picture i said you've got to follow him You've got to follow them. I need a picture. And so in the meantime, I put rollers in my hair. I'm 12, you know, and we followed them for hours. And um, sure enough, they start pulling into another gas station. And when my brother used to tell this story, he goes, rollers were going everywhere all over the car. And, you know, I'm brushing my hair and trying to just look perfect for Elvis. And and so I got out of the car one we got to this gas station and I went up to one of the guys with the overalls and the EP. And um, I said, could I please get a picture of Elvis? He said, well, we don't have any. And I said, oh, no, I have a camera. I'll take the picture. And uh, he was just kind of snotty. He just said, you know, Mr. Presley doesn't get his picture taken like that. And I'm like, so I get back in the car. Of course, now I've got crocodile tears. I have followed Elvis for hours trying to get this picture. And um, nothing would upset my brother more than his little sister having crocodile tears. And so all of a sudden, Elvis got out of the Winnebago again. So my brother got out of the car and he said, hey, Elvis. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, can I get a picture of you with my sister? He goes, sure. And so I'm like trying to dry my tears and I'm getting out of the car and, and I walk over there and he put his arm around me and he said, hey, haven't I seen you somewhere before? And I went, yeah, a couple hours ago in another gas station. <laughs> so um, we did get the picture. Of course, back in those days, you know, it was with a little Instamatic camera and my brother only took one picture instead of several and he was so nervous that it is a little blurry but i do have the picture and i do have the autograph and what a great story from patty kingsbaker and boy she recalls that like it was yesterday and i can bet her brother was shaking like a leaf taking that picture by the way we broadcast just an hour south of memphis in a beautiful town called oxford mississippi to the east tupelo elvis's birthplace is an hour away and to the north Well, Graceland is an hour away, and I don't think it's an accident that the confluence of gospel and country music and blues happened in Memphis. And I don't think it's an accident that our American stories come from a place not far from where Elvis was born and where he died. Patty Kingsbaker's story, a beautiful story, and how Elvis treated her, my goodness, just beautiful. Both of their stories here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories. Pilot and world champion runner Orville Rogers trained bomber pilots in World War II, flew the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, ferried airplanes to remote Baptist missions all over the world, and squeezed in a 31-year career as a pilot with Braniff Airways. Orville also took up running at age 51 and ran his first marathon six years later. At 100, he continues to compete and now holds 15 world records to date. Orville was married for 64 years. Beth, his bride, passed in 2008. He has two sons and a daughter, as well as nine grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. He now lives in Dallas, Texas. And his story, by the way, is so connected at 100, still running, to the life of Ken Cooper, the doctor in Dallas, Texas, who we featured about living longer and living better. And by the way, driving down healthcare costs, doing it all at the same time. And as always, our, our better living at lower cost segments and series are brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. But now, let's hear the story, the life story, of Orville Rogers. 1927, Lindbergh flew the first solo flight nonstop from New York, landed in Paris. He made a tour of the central United States and deliberately he circled every schoolhouse he could find and he circled our schoolhouse. My first airplane ride, that was a fun experience. I think I was about 10 or 11 years old in Sulphur, Oklahoma. I was in the yard one day and a plane flew over very low and it looked like he was going to be landing. So I jumped on my bike and rode out, and sure enough, he landed. So I went over and talked to him. He said, yeah, I'm giving rides $4. So I, I had to go back home and break my piggy bank and get the $4 out to come back and get my first airplane ride. I didn't tell my parents about it until much later. It was a wonderful experience, and it cemented my idea of becoming a pilot. My father deserted my mother and my sister and me when I was six years old. And my mother took us back to her parents, so we grew up in the home of my grandparents. And uh, he was a farm man. They were not very loving in a obvious way. I knew my grandfather loved me, but he never told me so. But it worked out okay because uh, I eventually came to terms with the realization that that was just their way of life. As a senior at Oklahoma University, I received the impression, I thought it was from God, that I ought to be in vocational Christian service in order to really serve God the best. Uh, that was the wrong impression, but in order to prepare for whatever God had for me, I knew I had to go to the seminary. So I came to the seminary in September of 1940, and uh, I think it was five weeks later, they held the first drawing for the draft for World War II service. There was a giant fishbowl in Washington, I think it was about five feet in diameter, that held slips of paper with numbers on them from one to a thousand. 
Well, so help me, my number was thrown out number seven. And uh, so I heard from the draft board almost immediately. So I went down and talked to them and I said, hey, I don't want to be in the walking army. Can I enlist in the Army Air Corps? They said, sure. So I enlisted in the Army Air Corps and was accepted and had my pre-induction physical. And they didn't call me up right away, but that was God's way of turning me around from my impression that I ought to be in vocational Christian service and told me that I could serve God as well or a whole lot better as a layman. I enlisted in the Army Air Corps November the 1st, 1941, five weeks before Pearl Harbor. And we heard about it one Sunday afternoon. We got the word when they turned the radio on that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. I was in training in San Diego flying a primary trainer. After graduating from flying school, the uh, second lieutenant pilots would be assigned to different bases. My instructor in the advanced training school recommended that I become an instructor. So all of my World War II flying career, I was in the training command instructing other students how to fly an airplane. We lost a large number of pilots, student pilots and instructor pilots to training accidents during the war. They were in such a rush to get the pilots to the front uh, because we needed them badly there. And so the program was accelerated to the point that it really was uh, quite dangerous. And I flew B-25s for over two years uh, instructing in the advanced phase of the flying training program, and I loved that airplane. It, it was a bomber uh, and a very effective one. At the end of the war, I was assigned to training in the B-17. I reported to my training base for B-17 training about three days after they dropped the first atomic bomb. So the, uh, then they dropped the second one and the war was over. I went ahead and finished my training in the B-17 but never got to use it. And I was separated from the Air Corps shortly after that. In uh, April of 1951, I was recalled to the Air Force, as they called it then. And I was assigned to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth flying the B-36 our primary defense weapon against an attack by Russia. We were on call 24 hours a day. If war had been declared, we would have loaded our atom bomb in Fort Worth, Texas, flown to Goose Bay, Labrador, refuel there, and then take off from there to bomb our assigned target in Russia. The B-36 at that time was the largest airplane in the world. It was longer than a B-29 and a B-17 nose to tail. That's a lot of airplane. We had a crew of 15 people and I loved flying that airplane. I had always wanted to fly the big airplanes. We would have no problem with dropping a bomb, although we knew what destruction it could cause. But I think everybody in my squadron, certainly on my crew, had accepted the fact that we signed up to defend our country. And while that possibly meant the destruction and the loss of life of many people, we were prepared mentally and psychologically 
in every way to accomplish that. 52 years later, in 2004, my wife and I were on a Russian cruise ship. We sailed from St. Petersburg to Moscow through the river and canal systems, and we docked on the northwest side of Moscow after stopping twice in cities en route to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of the Russian people. We had five doctors on board the ship and 10 nurses, and many of the people would be street witnessing uh, giving away English Bibles, Russian Bibles, children's Bibles, and literature. The day after we docked in Moscow, we had a clinic there in a schoolhouse on a site that was probably less than five miles from where my target was in 1952, if war had broken out. I'm glad we didn't have to drop the bomb to begin with, and I'm equally glad that I was able to be a part of a Christian group going to the very same area where my target was 52 years before, taking them the Christian witness and telling them about our Lord Jesus. Uh, it was just a wonderful feeling to, uh, to accomplish that because instead of dropping death and destruction from above, we were carrying in the word of life on the horizontal plane Word of life, eternal life, abundant life, available in our Lord Jesus. I met my wife at Oklahoma University. I had attended uh, my freshman year in another school, and I enrolled at Oklahoma University, so I was a sophomore and met her when she was a freshman. She was dating another boy when I first met her, my first year there, and they were pretty steady. It took a year or two, but uh, it, finally we became engaged. But one night I woke up in a deep, depressive, frame of mind because I had dreamed that she was marrying him and I was attending their wedding. And that had a profound effect on me for a few days, a week or two, because I just couldn't stand the thought of losing her. But he wouldn't lose his bride, Beth. And when we continue here on Our American Stories, the story of Orville Rogers continues. More after these messages. And we continue here with our American stories. And after flying the B-36 on secret missions during the Cold War, Orville Rogers became a commercial airline pilot and a missionary pilot for Wycliffe Bible Translators, also the jungle aviation and radio services known as JARS. In this segment, you'll also be hearing from Orville's doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute. We had mentioned that earlier in the opening of this story. Dr. Cooper is known as the father of aerobics and is a former Air Force colonel from Oklahoma. You can hear that story on ouramericannetwork.org. It's a terrific one all by itself. By the way, Dr. Cooper is also my doctor. Let's continue with Orville Rogers' story. I always enjoyed knowing that I was delivering people to their destinations 
safely and comfortably. Well, I flew for Brandon for a little over 30 years, and I loved it. I would have flown for nothing, but, but I was glad they paid me for it. <laughs> Banff Airlines started up with a route structure that only included two cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa. It was a single-engine airplane, but they soon graduated to the DC-3, and they were flying from Dallas to Chicago and gradually expanding. Uh, started out on the DC-3, and I flew the Convair 340 and 440, and it was taken over by the DC-6 series, and then we had a DC-7, and then eventually got up to the DC-8, and uh, then to the Boeing 727 for most of my flying, but I enjoyed flying the DC-8 to South America. It was a beautiful airplane. It was a long-range airplane. We flew it nonstop from New York to Buenos Aires. Uh, it was a 10-hour and 20-minute flight, and I think it was the longest non-stop flight in the airline business at the time we were flying it in 1976 and 1977. I really enjoyed that flight, but I enjoyed all of South America. I met the founder of Wycliffe, William Cameron Townsend, in our church in 1965 and I volunteered to help out with Bible translation and particularly the aviation part of it. And I realized that while I had about maybe a dozen Bibles in my house, there were people groups of the world that didn't have to have one word of God's Word in their own native language. Just felt like I could be of service in God's kingdom by helping deliver airplanes to the translators around the world who were there aiding the cause of Bible translation by the safe, efficient transportation where the roads were difficult or impossible. Well, I delivered 46 missionary airplanes in my career. Uh, they were challenging because you don't go down to the filling station and buy a, a road map. You have to be prepared for the over-ocean flying, which means the airplane must be equipped with additional radio equipment. It must have additional fuel for the long flights, either Europe or Africa or Southeast Asia, wherever you may be going. Because you look on a globe or a map at the Pacific Ocean and you see islands scattered all around everywhere. But when you get out there and fly it, you can fly for hours and hours and never see an island. So if the radio station on that island went out, or if you had difficulty with your receiver, uh, you'd be on your own looking for throughout that vast expanse of water to find that tiny little dot of an island down there. So it's a grave concern to uh, be able to navigate successfully. I took my first ferry flight for George in 1965. About a year or two later, they put me on their board, and I was on their board for 39 years. That's remarkable. I can't believe it. And three or four years later, the board chairman retired and they made me chairman of the board. So I was chairman of the board for 13 of those 39 years. And it was a delight to serve God that way. 
And uh, let me tell you about the climax of every missionary fly, ferry flight. When you taxi into the ramp, open the door and hand the keys to the airplane to the missionary pilot already there who's going to be flying that airplane in the work of Bible translation. I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper when I was in Chicago on a layover from our Braniff Airways flight, and I literally read it through in almost one sitting, and it was a highly motivational book. I started running the next day, and I've run a little over 42,500 miles in the last 50 years. Your feet are in remarkably good condition a person who has run for as long as you have. A person looks good for a man of, of any age. Okay, real deep. So he has a two and a half inch expansion, which is very good. Don't let me push it out. Hold it real tight, real tight, real tight. And that's like iron. You have very good quadricep muscles, right? Yeah, or well, at 100 years of age, you're like a man about 60. So you, you have, you you have you. slowed down the aging process, as you yeah. know. There's very few people past 100 years of age who can begin to keep up with you, even be alive, as you know. Yeah, my objective is to slow down as slowly as possible. Slow down as slowly as possible. And you've proven, too, what I've said for years. It's fascinating, though, that one can grow healthier as one grows older, and not necessarily the reverse. Who determines that? You do. Here you're 100 years of age, yeah. I'm 87 years of age, still practicing medicine every day. So we're enjoying life the fullest, and our goal for you and for me both is live that long, healthy life the fullest, and then die suddenly. We call that squaring off the curve, yeah. and you've already passed that. But you know, as we tell people coming to our clinic, we call them getting Cooperized, following all the recommendations we give to our patients, over 145,000 patients now. If you follow recommendations for diet and weight and exercise, all the various things that we, that we recommend, that you should live 10 years longer than the national average. Wow. That would mean you should live 87 years. I'm already 87 trying to prove that, and you're way beyond that. I started running early on with a group called the Cross Country Club of Dallas, and it was competitive but in a friendly way. And I gradually outgrew the group, outaged them, and I looked around and the world records seemed to be attainable. So uh, a little over 10 years ago now, when I was approaching 90, I looked up the world records for the one mile and the 800 meters, and I thought, maybe I can do that. So I engaged the trainer, and he coached me on starting and breathing and pacing, and I went to Boston 10 years ago. I ran the 800 meters in world record time. I think I broke the record by about the 30 seconds. But I really slaughtered the mile. I think the record was 11 minutes and some seconds. And uh, I attacked it vigorously and finished with a time under 10 minutes. I think it was 9.57 something or other. And I'm still the only man in the world that had run a 10 minute mile after the age of 90. I like that. In March this year, I attended the National Indoor Championship meet near Washington, D.C. It was a track and field meet. I entered five running events ranging from 60 meters up to 1,500 meters. And uh, I had no competition, so I got gold records just by showing up and suiting up, starting and finishing. 
But the uh, icing on the cake was that I was able to set five new world records, one for each of the five events that I entered. So I now hold or have set 18 world records. I think two or three of them have been broken. But I have set 18 world records officially. And what a story this is, Orville Rogers' story. And we'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out their full documentary and the 1,900 more titles of uplifting family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. That's visionvideo.com. When we continue more of the life of Orville Rogers, Orville Rogers' story continues here on Our American Story. And we return to the story of Orville Rogers and his doctor, Kenneth Cooper, founder and chairman of the Cooper Institute, located in Orville's hometown of Dallas, Texas. But both of these guys, well, they come and hail from Oklahoma. We will also be hearing from Orville's daughter, Susan, his sons, Rick and Bill, and his great-grandson. Let's begin with Dr. Ken Cooper. Well, first of all, it's not that amazing anymore, people who have passed 100 years. They're becoming uh, quite, that's quite readily known. But people past 100 years of age who are still competing athletically in running events, that is extremely unusual, one out of a million, I would say. So Orville has, he's had his problems. He was a marathon runner and all when I first met him at age 54, that's 46 years ago, I did his first examination here at the clinic in 1971. I followed him every year after that, too. But what has happened is he's had some medical problems back in 1993. All of a sudden we discovered he had severe coronary disease without any chest pain whatsoever when he had a six-vessel coronary bypass procedure. That was 1993. Then in 2011, he had a major stroke that occurred in 2011. But he's only incapacitated for 30 days. He's out back running again. One aspect of my running is that it gives me a platform to speak a word for my Lord Jesus. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, and I've tried to follow my Lord for 90 years now. I've run in races where people alongside me or near me would falter just a little bit as they approached the finish line, two or three or four or five yards. It seemed like they were saying to themselves, there's the finish line, I've made it, and they kind of relax and slow down a little bit. That's not my style. I want to power through running uh, to the very end of the tape, and it served me well. A year ago in Albuquerque, I was running against a 94-year-old man, and he got off, there's just the two of us, in the 60-meter race, and he got off to a fast start. I don't have fast twitch muscles, which enables a, a fast start in running, and so he was three or four yards ahead of me almost immediately. But I kept plugging away and uh, maintaining the pace that I thought would be applicable to that distance. And he must have slowed down because I certainly wasn't speeding up, but I began gaining on him at the halfway mark and at the finish line, I leaned forward, 
just enough to beat him by five hundredths of one second. <laughs> uh, there's a magazine that came out with a statement that we had met five times after that race, and I, I beat him every time. And uh, I don't want to slow down at the finish line. I don't want to be disqualified by not serving my Lord well all through every day of my life. I want to finish strong for my Lord. Don't you? I hope you enjoy life as much as I do. I love life. My son was a Marine helicopter pilot and was on a rescue mission in Vietnam in 1970 and was killed when they, they ran into very adverse weather conditions in the extraction process. Well, God can use any experience of life to the benefit, and one of the good things that came out of this was the realization that uh, Curtis lived a wonderful life, and he died in service for our country, and uh, if, if it had to happen, that was the best way it could. My advice to anyone in a similar situation would be that God is still in control. He knows what is happening, and he is in control, in control and he can be relied upon to supply you comfort and uh, help anytime it's needed. My wife and I served for 13 months in Tanzania. I had a beautiful uh, Cessna 210 flying over Tanzania, which is as big as Texas and part of New Mexico. The interesting part about that trip was when we left Honolulu, I had not explained to my wife that radio waves are straight line, just like sunlight. And once you fly about 100 miles or so, depending on your altitude, away from your home departure station, you lose radio contact. Uh, so I was halfway to Johnston Island or so and trying to work anybody that would talk to me, and nobody would talk to me. I wanted to make a position report. And I uh, sensed that maybe she was getting a little bit nervous about the situation because I was using a loudspeaker and she could hear the conversation. So I took off my headset and laid it down and put my bike down. I reached over and gave her a big hug and I said, Honey, when you married me, did you ever think you'd be having this much fun? <laughs> she didn't hit me. Uh, I'm free to express my life story in that manner. If my viewers understand that I'm doing it as a Christian witness, I want no glory for it. I want no commendation for it. But uh, I found out early in life that it would be wise to save enough money as possible and invest it so that in the future I could be a vehicle for helping God's work, bringing his kingdom to earth from heaven as he asked us to do. And so I got interested in investing. I invested in the stock market, in land and uh, oil and gas. And God blessed in that. Uh, if people ask me, how did I do that? I say, I did not do it. God did it. And it was our privilege, and I, since my wife's death, to give away over $35 million to God's work. I, I knew that Dad flew a lot, but it never felt like he missed important things like piano recitals or football games or 
anything. And he's getting us back for that now. By going to, <laughs> we're going to his track meets and interviews and banquets and birthdays. So Every day is a gift, and I think he is the one that really epitomizes that. I mean, he knows it every day, every, day, every year, and it just it, it gives us a, a great sense of uh, purpose and uh, looking toward the future, and I think that's the way he's made it from 90 to 100 for sure. I remember when he first realized he couldn't run a sub 10 minute mile anymore and my friends in their 60s all say I can't run a sub 10 minute mile and they're in their 60s. They can't remember when they could run a sub 10 minute mile so it's pretty fun. We try to keep him humble. I mean I tell him all the time that I could do what he does and be in the newspaper the next day too but the only problem is I'd be in the obituary section and he's in the sports section. One of my big memories of my dad and my mom was looking in their bedroom and seeing them on their knees praying. It was regular and not for show. They were prayerful people and made it just a core to their life. And they're always reading the Bible and they prayed through the missionary prayer list, which I don't know if it bothered them. It made me kind of crazy sometimes, but they prayed for every Southern Baptist missionary on their birthday throughout the whole year. It was pretty amazing discipline. I'm in track right now in I just think that I, it's great having a grandpa that is 100 and running track, so <laughs> when I run, I just think about him a lot, so I just think that's great. My dad and my mom wanted to be with us on vacations. There's a lot of people <laughs> that talk to them and say, what? You know, that's not a vacation if your kids and grandkids are there. But he started it over 30 years ago, and we go on fabulous trips every summer and it's a job now coordinating that many people so it's over 30 people for over 30 years uh, going together someplace crazy anywhere from the North Pole to Antarctica to Europe or Africa but they've been an amazing way for this family to bond. I enjoy reading and uh, studying Hebrews 12 1 and 2 because Paul speaks there of running as being a metaphor for living. And uh, I think I can quote it. Uh, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and henceforth is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what a story we just heard. What a life well lived in his hundreds and still running. And running being a metaphor for life. We'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their wonderful documentary, Flying High for the Glory of God, The Orville Rogers Story. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. His faith, a fundamental part of his life. The kid's vision of the parents sitting in that room, kneeling down and praying for other people. And we tell their stories here on this show, just as we tell everyone's stories. Faith, no faith, no difference to us. Beautiful stories are beautiful stories. That he gave away $35 million that he'd made investing because he didn't think it was his. My goodness, what a story to tell by itself. And what a heart, what a generous heart. And by the way, that he lived so long, you know, we do a lot of these stories about living longer and cutting down costs and living better. Uh, these are 
stories that the Cooper Clinic has turned us on to, Ken Cooper's life work, and the work with Chuck Stetson and his family office, better living at lower costs. And my goodness, this story is a metaphor for all of those things, teaching us all how to live in the end. Orville Rogers' story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 